Volume One, Chapter Eight of Helen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tara Mendoza. Helen by Maria Edgeworth. Volume One, Chapter Eight. I am proud to tell you that at the time I married, we were so poor that I was obliged to give up many of those luxuries to which I was entitled, and to which I had been so accustomed, that the doing without them had till then hardly come within my idea of possibility. Our whole establishment was on the most humble scale. I look back to this period of my life with the greatest satisfaction. I had exquisite pleasure, like all young people of sanguine temperament and generous disposition, in the consciousness of the capability of making sacrifices. This notion was my idol, the idol of the inmost sanctuary of my mind, and I worshipped it with all the energies of body and soul. In the course of a few years my husband's two elder brothers died. If you have any curiosity to know how, I will tell you, though indeed it is as little to the purpose as half the things people tell in their histories. The eldest, a home-bred lordling, who from the moment he slipped his mother's apron-strings had fallen into folly and then to show himself manly, run into vice, lost his life in a duel about some lady's crooked thumb, or a more crooked mind. The second brother distinguished himself in the navy. He died the death of honour. He fell gloriously, and was by his country honoured, by his country mourned. After the death of this young man, the inheritance came to my husband. Fortune soon after poured in upon us as a tide of wealth swelled by collateral streams. You will wish to know what effect this change of circumstances produced upon my mind, and you shall, as far as I know it myself. I fancied that it would have made none, because I had been before accustomed to all the trappings of wealth, yet it did make a greater change in my feelings than you could have imagined, or I could have conceived. The possibility of producing a great effect in society, of playing a distinguished part, and attaining an eminence which pleased my fancy, had never till now been within my reach. The incense of fame had been wafted near me, but not to me. Near my husband, I mean, yet not to him. I had heard his brother's name from the trumpet of fame. I longed to hear his own. I knew what to the world was then unknown, his great talents for civil business, which, if urged into action, might make him distinguished as a statesman, even beyond his hero-brother but I knew that in him ambition, if it ever awoke, must be awakened by love. Conscious of my influence, I determined to use it to the utmost. Lord Davenant had not at that time taken any part in politics, but from his connections he could ask and obtain, and there was one in the world for whom I desired to obtain a favour of importance. It chanced that he, whom I have mentioned to you as my inconstant lover, now married to my lovely rival was at this time in some difficulty about a command abroad. His connections, though very high rank, were not now in power. He had failed in some military exploit, which had formerly been entrusted to him. He was anxious to retrieve his character, his credit, his whole fate in life, depended on his obtaining this appointment, which at my request was secured to him by Lord Davenant. The day it was obtained was, I think, the proudest of my life, I was proud of returning good for evil. That was a Christian pride, if pride can be Christian. 
I was proud of showing that in me there was none of the fury of a woman scorned, no sense of the injury of charms despised. But it was not yet the fullness of success. It had pained me in the midst of my internal triumph that my husband had been obliged to use intermediate powers to obtain that which I should have desired should have been obtained by his own. Why should not he be in that first place of rule? He could hold the balance with a hand as firm, and I as just. That he should be in the house of peers was little satisfaction to me, unless distinguished among his peers. It was this distinction that I burned to see obtained by Lord Davenant. I urged him forward, then, by all the motives which make ambition virtue. He was averse from the public life, partly from indolence of temper, partly from sound philosophy. Power was low in the scale in his estimate of human happiness. He saw how little can be effected of real good in public by any individual. He felt it scarcely worth his while to stir from his easy chair of domestic happiness. However, love urged him on, and inspired him, if not with ambition, at least with what looked like it in public. He entered the lists, and in the political tournament tilted successfully. Many were astonished, for till they came against him in the joust, they had no notion of his weight, or of his skill in arms, and many seriously inclined to believe that Lord Davenant was only Lady Davenant in disguise, and all he said, wrote, and did, was attributed to me. Envy gratifies herself continually by thus shifting the merit from one person to another, in hopes that the actual quantity may be diminished. She tries to make out that it is never the real person, but somebody else, who does that which is good. This silly base propensity might have cost me dear, would have cost me my husband's affections, had he not been a man, as there are few, above all jealousy of female influence, or female talent. In short, he knew his own superiority, and needed not to measure himself to prove his height. He is quite content, rather glad, that everybody should set him down as a commonplace character. Far from being jealous of his wife's ruling him, he was amused by the notion. It flattered his pride, and it was convenient to his indolence. It fell in, too, with his peculiar humour. The more I retired, the more I was put forward. He, laughing behind me, prompted and forbid me to look back. Now, Helen, I come to a point where ambition ceased to be virtue. But why should I tell you all this? No one is ever the better for the experience of another. Oh, I cannot believe that cried Helen. Pray, pray go on. Ambition first rose in my mind from the ashes of another passion. Fresh materials of heterogeneous kinds altered the colour and changed the nature of the flame. I should have told you, but narrative is not my forte. I never can remember to tell things in the right order. I forgot to tell you that when Madame de Stolz's book, Sir La Révolution Française, came out, it made an extraordinary impression upon me. I turned in the first place, as everybody did, eagerly to the chapter on England. But though my national feelings were gratified, my female pride was dreadfully mortified by what she says of the ladies of England. In fact, she could not judge of them. They were afraid of her. They would not come out of their shells. What she called timidity, and what I am sure she longed to call stupidity, was the silence of overawed admiration, or mixed curiosity and discretion. Those who did venture had not full possession of their powers, 
or in a hurry showed them in a wrong direction. She saw none of them in their natural state. She asserts that, though there may be women distinguished as writers in England, there are no ladies who have any great conversational and political influence in society, of that kind which during la Regime was obtained in France by what they would call their femme macante, such as Madame de Tennessine, Madame de Defende, Mademoiselle de Respinas. This remark stung me to the quick, for my country and for myself, and raised in me a foolish, vainglorious emulation, an ambition false in its objects, and unsuited to the manners, domestic habits, and public virtue of our country. I ought to have been gratified by her observing that a lady is never to be met with in England, as formerly in France, at the Bureau de Ministre, and that, in England, there has never been any example of a woman's having known in public affairs, or at least told, what ought to have been kept secret. Between ourselves, I suspect, she was a little mistaken in some of these assertions. But, be that as it may, I determined to prove that she was mistaken. I was conscious that I had more within me than I had yet brought out. I did not doubt that I had an eloquence, if I had but courage to produce it. It is really astonishing what a mischievous effect those few passages produced on my mind. In London one book drives out another. One impression, however deep, is effaced by the next shaking of the sand. But I was then in the country, for unluckily for me, Lord Davenant had been sent away on some special embassy. Left alone with my nonsense, I set about, as soon as I was able, to assemble an audience round me, to exhibit myself in the character of a female politician, and I believe I had a notion at the same time of being the English Corinne, Rouchefoucault, the dexterous anatomist of self-love, says that we confess our small faults to persuade the world that we have no large ones. But for my part, I feel that there are some small faults more difficult to me to confess than any large ones. Affectation, for instance. It is something so little, so paltry. It is more than a crime. It is a ridicule. I believe I did make myself completely ridiculous. I am glad Lord Davenant was not by. It lasted but a short time. Our dear good friend Dumont, you knew Dumont at Florence, could not bear to see it. His regard for Lord Davenant urged him the more to disenchant me and bring me back. Before his return to my natural form, the disenchantment was rather rude. One evening, after I had been snuffing up incense till I was quite intoxicated, when my votaries had departed, and we were alone together, I said to him, aloud that this is what would be called at Paris, un grand succès. Dumont made no reply but stood opposite to me playing in his peculiar manner with his great snuff-box, slowly swaying the snuff from side to side. Knowing this to be a sign that he was in some great dilemma, I asked of what he was thinking. "'Of you,' said he. "'And what of me?' In his French accent he repeated those two provoking lines. "'New wheat, like wine, intoxicates the brain, too strong for feeble women to sustain.' "'To my face,' said I, smiling, for I tried to command my temper. "'Better then behind your back, as others do,' said he. "'Behind my back,' said I. "'Impossible!' "'Perfectly possible,' said he, "'as I could prove if you were strong enough to bear it.' "'Quite strong enough,' I said, and bade him speak on. "'Suppose you were offered 
said he, the fairy ring, then rendered the possessor invincible, and enabled him to hear everything that was said, and all that was thought of him. Would you throw it away, or put it on your ring finger? Put it on my finger, I replied, and this instant, for a true friend is better than a magic ring, I put it on. You are very brave, said he. Then you shall hear these lines I heard in a rival salon, repeated by him who last wafted the censer to you to-night. He repeated a kind of doggerel, pasquinade, beginning with, Tell me, gentles, have you seen the braiding she, the mock-coing? Dumont, who had the courage for my good to inflict the blow, could not stay to see its effect, and this time I was left alone, not with my nonsense, but with my reason. It was quite sufficient. I was cured. My only consolation in my disgrace was that I honourably kept Dumont's counsel. The friend who had compassed the lampoon from that day to this never knew that I had heard it, though I must own I often longed to tell him when he was offering his incense again, that I wished he would reverse his practice, and let us have the satire in my presence, and keep the flattery for my absence. The graft of affectation, which was but a poor, weak thing, fell off at once, but the root of the evil had not been reached. My friend Dumont had not cut deep enough, or perhaps feared to cut away too much that was sound and essential to life. My political ambition remained, and on Lord Davenant's return sprang up in full vigour. Now it is all over. I can analyse and understand my own motives. When I first began my political course, I really and truly had no love for power. Full of other feelings, I was averse from it. It was absolutely disagreeable to me. But as people acquire a taste for drams after making faces at first swallowing, so I, from experience of the excitation, acquired the habit and the love of this mental dram-drinking. Besides, I had such delightful excuses for myself. I didn't love power for its own sake. It was never used for myself, always for others, ever with my old principle of sacrifice in full play. This flattering unction I laid to my soul, and it long hid from me its weakness, its gradual corruption. The first instance in which I used my influence, and by my husband's intervention, obtained a favour of some importance, the thing done, though actually obtained by private favour, was in a public point of view well done, and fit to be done. But when in time Lord Davenant had reached that eminence which had been the summit of my ambition, and when once it was known that I had influence, and in making it known between jest and earnest, Lord Davenant was certainly to blame. Numbers, of course, were eager to avail themselves of the discovery. Swarms born in the noontide ray, or such as salute the rising morn, buzzed round me. I was good-natured, and glad to do the service, and proud to show that I could do it. I thought I had some right to share with Lord Davenant, at least the honour and pleasures of patronage, and so he willingly allowed it to be, as long as my objects were well chosen. Though he said to me once, with a serious smile, "'The patronage of Europe would not satisfy you. You would want India, and if you had India, you would sigh for the new world.' I had only laughed, and said the same thought as Lord Chesterfield's, only more neatly put. 
if all ireland were given to such a one for his patrimony he'd ask for the isle of man for his cabbage garden lord davenant did not smile i felt a little alarmed and a feeling of estrangement began between us i recollect one day his seeing a note on my table from one of my protégés thanking me outrageously and extolling my very obliging disposition he read and threw it down and with one of his dry humour smiles repeated half to himself and so obliging that shall ne'er oblige i thought these lines were in the characters of women and i hunted all through them in vain at last i found them in the character of a man which could not suit me and i was pacified and what is extraordinary my conscience quite put at ease the week afterwards i went to make some request for a friend my little boy for i had a dear little boy then had come in and along with mamma lord davenant complied with my request but unwillingly i saw and as if he felt it a weakness and putting his hand upon the curly-pated little fellow's head he said this boy rules greece i see the child was sent for the grecian history his father took him on his knee while he read the anecdote and as he ended he whispered in the child's ear tell mamma this must not be papa should be ruled only by justice he really had public virtue i only talked of it after this you will wonder that i could go on but i did i had at that time a friend who talked always most romantically and acted most selfishly and for some time i never noticed the inconsistency between her words and actions in fact she had two currents in her mind two selves one romantic from books the other selfish from worldly education and love of fashion and of the goods of this world she had charming manners which i thought went for nothing with me but which i found stood for everything in short she was as caressing as graceful in her little ways and as selfish as a cat she had claws too but at first i only felt the velvet it was for this woman that i hazarded my highest happiness my husband's esteem and for the most paltry object imaginable. She wanted some petty place for some man who was to marry her favourite maid. When I first mentioned it to him, Lord Davenant coldly said, It can't be done. And his pen went on very quickly with the letter he was writing. Vexed and ashamed, and the more vexed because ashamed, I persisted. Cannot be done. For me, said I. Not for anybody, said he by me at least i thought oh helen i am ashamed to tell you what i thought but i will tell it to you because it will show you how a mind may be debased by the love of power or rather by the consequence which its possession bestows i thought he meant to point out to me that although he would not do it i might get it done and speaking as if to myself i said then i'll go to such a person then I'll use such and such ways and means. Looking up from his writing at me, with a look such as I have never seen from him before, he replied, in the words of a celebrated minister, C'est facile de se servir de Paris moyen, c'est difficile de soudre I admired him, despised myself, left the room and went and told my friend decidedly it could not be done that instant she became my enemy and i felt her claws i was proud of the wounds and showed them to my husband 
Now, Helen, you think I am cured for ever and safe. Alas, no, my dear. It is not so easy to cure habit. I have, however, some excuse. Let me put it forward. The person for whom I again transgressed was my mother, and for her I was proud of doing the utmost, because she had, as I could not forget, been ready to sacrifice my happiness to her speculations. She had left off building castles in the air, but she had outbuilt herself on earth. She had often recourse to me in her difficulties, and I supplied funds as well as I might, for I had a most liberal allowance from my most liberal lord. But schemes of my own, very patriotic, but not overwise, had in process of time drained my purse. I had a school at Cecilhurst, and a lace manufactory, and to teach my little girls I must needs bring over lace-makers from Flanders, and Lyle thread, at an enormous expense. I shut my lace-makers up in a room, for secrecy was necessary. Where like spiders they quarrelled with each other and fought, and the whole failed. Another scheme, very patriotic too, cost me an immensity, trying to make Indian cashmeres in England. Very beautiful they were, but they left not the tenth part of a penny in my private purse, and then my mother wanted some thousands for a new dairy. Dairies were then the fashion, and hers was to be floored with the finest Dutch tiles, furnished with Sevres china, with plate-glass windows, and a porch hung with French mirrors. So she set me to represent to Lord Davenant her very distressed situation, and to present a petition from her for a pension. The first time I urged my mother's request, Lord Davenant said, I am sure, Anne, that you do not know what you are asking. I desisted. I did not indeed well understand the business, nor at all comprehend that I was insisting a fraudulent attempt to obtain public money for a private purpose. But I wished to have the triumph of success. I wished to feel my own influence. Had it been foretold to me that I could so forget myself in the intoxication of political power, how I should have disdained the prophecy! Lord, is thy servant a dog that he should do this thing? There is a fine sermon of Blair's on this subject. It had early made a great impression upon me. But what are good impressions, good feelings, good impulses, good intentions, good anything, without principle? My mother wondered how I could so easily take a refusal. She piqued my pride by observing that she was sorry my influence had declined. Her pity, so near contempt, wounded me, and I, unadvisedly, exclaimed that my influence had in no way declined. Scarcely had I uttered the words, when I saw the inference to which they laid me open, that I had not used my influence to the utmost for her. My mother had quite sense and just feeling enough to refrain from marking this in words. She noted it only by an observing look, followed by a sigh. She confessed that I had always been so kind, so much kinder than she could have expected, that she would say no more. This was more to the purpose with me than if she had talked for hours. I heard fresh sighs and saw tears begin to flow. A mother's sighs and tears, it is difficult, and I felt it was shameful to bear. I was partly melted, much confused, and hurried too by visitors coming in, and I hastily promised that I would try once more what I could do. The moment I had time for reflection I repented of what I had promised, but the words were past recall. It was so disagreeable to me to speak about the affair to my husband that I wanted to get it off my mind as soon as possible, 
but the day passed without my being able to find a moment when I could speak to Lord Davenant in private. Company stayed till late, my mother the latest. At parting as she kissed me, calling me her dearest Anne, she said she was convinced I could do whatever I pleased with Lord Davenant, and as she was going downstairs, added, she was sure the first words she should hear from me in the morning would be, Victory, victory! I hated myself for admitting the thought, and yet there it was. I let it in, and could not get it out. From what an indescribable mixture of weak motives or impulses, and often without one reasonable principle, do we act in the most important moments of life! Even as I opened the door of his room, I hesitated. My heart beat forebodingly, but I thought I could not retreat, and I went in. He was standing on the hearth, looking weary, but a reviving smile came on seeing me, and he held out his hand. "'My comfort always,' said he. I took his hand, and hesitating was again my better self. But I would not go back, nor could I begin with any preface. Thank heaven that was impossible. I began. "'Davenort, I am come to ask you a favour, and you must do it for me.' "'I hope it is in my power, my dear.' said he. I am sure you would not ask. And there he stopped. I told him it was in his power, and that I would not ask it for any creature living, but— He put his hand upon my lips, told me he knew what I was going to say, and begged me not to say it. But I, hoping to carry it off playfully, kissed his hand, and putting it aside, said, I must ask, and you must grant this to my mother. He replied, It cannot be, Anne consistently with public justice and with my public duty, I— "'Nonsense! Nonsense!' I said. "'Such words are only to mask a refusal.' "'Mask,' I remember, was the word that hurt him. Of all I could have used, it was the worst. I knew it the instant I had said it. Lord Davenant stepped back, and with such a look. "'You, Helen, who have seen only his benign countenance, his smiling eyes, cannot conceive it.' I am sure he must have seen how much it alarmed me, for suddenly it changed, and I saw all the melting softness of love. Oh, fool, vain, wicked fool that I was! I thought of victory and pursued it. My utmost power of persuasion, words, smiles, and tears I tried, and tried in vain, and then I could not bear to feel that I had in vain made this trial of power and love. Shame and pride and anger seized me by turns, and raised such a storm within me, such confusion, that I knew not what I did or said. And he was so calm, looked so at least, though I am sure he was not. His self-possession piqued and provoked me past all bearing. I cannot tell you exactly how it was. It was so dreadfully interesting to me that I am unable to recall the exact words— but I remember at last hearing him say in a voice I had never before heard, "'Lady Davenant.' He had never called me so before. He had always called me Anne. It seemed as if he had dismissed me from his heart. "'Call me Anne! Oh, call me Anne!' And he yielded instantly. He called me Anne, and caressing me, his Anne. "'Oh, Helen, never do as I did,' I whispered. "'Then, my love, you will do this for me?' For me, your own Anne. He put me gently away, and leaned against the chimney-piece in silence. Then turning to me, in a low, suppressed voice, he said, I have loved you, love you as much as a man can love woman. 
there is nothing i would not sacrifice for you except no exceptions cried i in an affected tone of gaiety except honour he repeated firmly helen my dear you are of a generous nature so am i but the demon of pride was within me it made me long to try the extent of my power disappointed i sunk to meanness never never however tempted however provoked never do as i did never reproach a friend with any sacrifice you have made for them this is a meanness which your friend may forgive but which you can never forgive yourself i reproached him with the sacrifice of my feelings which i had made in marrying him his answer was i feel that what you say is true i am now convinced you are incapable of loving me and since i cannot make you happy we had better part these were the last words i heard the blow was wholly unexpected whether i sunk down or threw myself at his feet i know not but when i came to myself he was standing beside me there were other faces but my eyes saw only his i felt his hand wholly mine i pressed it and said forget he stooped down and whispered it is forgotten i believe there is nothing can touch a generous mind so much as the being treated with perfect generosity nothing makes us so deeply feel our own fault lady davenant was here so much moved that she could say no more by an involuntary motion she checked the reins and the horses stopped and she continued quite silent for a few minutes at length two or three deeply drawn sighs seemed to relieve her she looked up and her attention seemed to be caught by a bird that was singing sweetly on a branch over their heads she asked what bird it was helen showed it to her where it sat she looked up and smiled touched the horses with her whip and went on where she had left off the next thing was the meeting with my mother in the morning. I prepared myself for it, and thought I was now armed so strong in honesty that I could go through with it well. My morality, however, was a little nervous, was fluttered by the knock at the door, and when I heard her voice as she came towards my room, asking eagerly if I was alone, I felt a sickness at the certainty that I must at once crush her hopes. But I stood resolved— my eyes fixed on the door through which she was to enter. She came in to my astonishment, with a face radiant with joy, and hastening to me she embraced me with the warmest expression of fondness and gratitude. I stood petrified as I heard her talk of my kindness, my generosity. I asked what she could mean, said there must be some mistake, but holding before my eyes a note, "'Can there be any mistake in this?' said she that note for i can never forget it i will repeat to you what you wish can be done in a better manner than you proposed the public must have no concern with it lady davenant must have the pleasure of doing it her own way an annuity to the amount required shall be punctually paid to your banker the first instalment will be in his hands by the time you receive this davenant when i had been formally disenchanted from my trance of love the rudeness of the shock had benumbed all my faculties, and left me scarcely power to think. But now, when thus recovered from the delirium of power, I was immediately in perfect possession of my understanding, and when I was made to comprehend the despicable use I would have made of my influence, 
or the influence my husband possessed, I was so shocked that I have ever since, I am conscious in speaking of any political corruption, rather exaggerated my natural abhorrence of it. Not from the mean and weak idea of convincing the world how foreign all such wrong was to my soul, but because it really is foreign to it, because I know how it can debase the most honourable characters. I feel so much shocked at the criminal as at the crime, because I saw it once in all its hideousness so near myself. A change in the ministry took place this year. Lord Davenant's resignation was sent in and accepted, and in retirement I had not only leisure to be good, but also leisure to cultivate my mind. Of course, I had read all such reading as ladies read, but this was very different from the kind of study that would enable me to keep pace with Lord Davenant and his highly informed friends. Many of these more men of thought than of show visited us from time to time in the country. Though I had passed very well in London society, blue, red, and green, literary, fashionable, and political, and had been extolled as both witty and wise, especially when my husband was in place, yet when I came into close contact with minds of a higher order, I felt my own deficiencies. Lord Davenant's superiority I particularly perceived in the solidity of the ground he uniformly took and held in reasoning, and when I, too confident, used to venture rashly, and often found myself surrounded, and in imminent danger in argument, he used to bring me off, and ably cover my retreat, and look so pleased, so proud, when I made a happy hit, or jumped to a right conclusion. But what I most liked, most admired in him was, that he never triumphed, or took unfair advantages on the strength of his learning, of his acquirements, or of what I may call his logical training. I mention these seeming trifles, because it is not always in the great occasions of life that a generous disposition shows itself in the way which we most feel. Little instances of generosity shown in this way, unperceived by others, have gone most deeply into my mind, and have most raised my opinion of his character. The sense that I was over rather than undervalued made me the more ready to acknowledge and feel my own deficiencies. I felt the truth of an aphorism of Lord Verulam's, which has now come down to the copy-books, that knowledge is power. Having made this notable discovery, I set about with all my might to acquire knowledge. You may smile, and think that this was only in a new form the passion for power. No, it was something better, not to do myself injustice. I now felt the pure desire of knowledge, and enjoyed the pure pleasure of obtaining it. Assisted, supported, and delighted by the sympathy of a superior mind. As to intellectual happiness, this was the happiest time of my life, as if my eyes had been rubbed by your favourite device in the Arabian tales, with his charmed ointment, which opened at once to view all the treasures of the earth. I saw and craved the boundless treasures open to my view. I now wanted to read all that Lord Davenant was reading, that I might be up to his ideas, but this was not to be done in an instant. There was a Frenchwoman who complained that she never could learn anything, because she could not find anybody to teach her all she wanted to know in two words. I was not quite so exigent at this lady, but after having skated on easily and rapidly, far on the superficies of knowledge, 
It was difficult and rather mortifying to have to go back and begin at the beginning. Yet when I wanted to go a little deeper, and really to understand what I was about, this was essentially necessary. I could not have got through without the assistance of one who showed me what I might safely leave unlearned, and who pointed out what fruit was worth climbing for, what would only turn to ashes. This happy time of my life too quickly passed away. It was interrupted, however, not by any fault or folly of my own, but by an infliction from the hand of Providence, to which I trust I submitted with resignation. We lost our dear little boy. My second boy was born dead, and my confinement was followed by long and severe illness. I was ordered to try the air of Devonshire. One night, now, my dear, I have kept for the last the only romantic incident in my life. One night a vessel was wrecked upon our coast. One of the passengers, a lady, an invalid, was brought to our house. I hastened to her assistance. It was my beautiful rival. She was in a deep decline, and had been at Lisbon for some time, but she was now sent home by the physicians, as they send people from one country to another to die. The captain of the ship in which she was on mistook the lights upon the coast, and ran the ship ashore near to our house. Of course we did for her all we could, but she was dying. She knew nothing of my history, and I trust I soothed her last moments. She died in my arms. She had one child, a son, then at Eton. We sent for him. He arrived too late. The feeling he showed interested us deeply. We kept him with us some time. He was grateful, and afterwards, as he grew up, he often wrote to me. His letters you have read. "'Mr. Beauclerc,' said Helen. "'Mr. Beauclerc. I had not seen him for some time, when General Clarendon presented him to me as his ward at Florence, where I had opportunities of essentially serving him. You may now understand, my dear, why I had expected that Mr. Granville Beauclerc might have preferred coming to Clarendon Park this last month of my stay in England to the pleasures of London. I was angry, I own, but after five minutes' grace I cooled, saw that I must be mistaken, and came to the just conclusion of the old poet, that no one sinks at once to the depth of ill, and ingratitude I consider as the depth of ill. I opine, therefore, that some stronger feeling than friendship now operates to detain Granville Beauclerc, in that case I forgive him, but for his own sake, and, with such a young man, I should say, for the sake of society, of the public good, for he will end up in public life, I hope the present object is worthy of him, whoever she may be. Have I anything more to tell you? Yes, I should say that, when by changes in the political world Lord Davenant was again in power, I had learned, if not to be less ambitious, at least to show it less. D., who knew always how to put sense into my mind, so that I found it there, and thought it completely my own, had once said that every public man who has a cultivated and high-minded wife has, in fact, two selves, each holding watch and ward for the other. The notion pleased me, pleased both my fancy and my reason. I acted on it, and Lord Davenant assures me that I have been this second self to him and I am willing to believe it, first, because he is a man of strict truth, and secondly, because every woman is willing to believe what she wishes. 
Lady Davenant paused, and after some minutes of reflection said, I confess, however, that I have not reason to be quite satisfied with myself as a mother. I did not attend sufficiently to Cecilia's early education. Engrossed with politics, I left her too much to governesses, at one period to a very bad one. I have done what I can to remedy this, and you have done more, perhaps, but I much fear that the early neglect can never be completely repaired. She is, however, married to a man of sense, and when I go to Russia, I shall think with satisfaction that I leave you with her. After expressing how deeply she had been interested in all that she had heard, and how grateful she felt for the confidence reposed in her, Helen said she could not help wishing that Cecilia knew all that had been just told to her, of Lady Davenant's history. If Cecilia could but know all the tenderness of her mother's heart, how much less would she fear, how much more would she love her? It would answer no purpose, replied Lady Davenant. There are persons with intrinsic differences of character, who explain as you will, can never understand one another beyond a certain point. Nature and art forbid. No spectacles you can furnish will remedy certain defects of vision. Cecilia sees as much as she can ever see of my character, and I see, in the best light, the whole of hers. So, Helen, my dear, take the advice of a Scotch proverb. Proverbs are vulgar, because they usually contain common sense. Let well alone. You are really a very good little friend, added she. But keep my personal narrative for your own use. End of Volume 1, Chapter 8 Recorded by Tara Mendoza, Litchfield Park, Arizona, October 2011.